Ronald Reagan famously warned that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Of course, he made that proclamation in the midst of the Cold War when America faced the existential threat of Soviet communism. Today, freedom faces a new ideological threat, but this time it's from within, social justice. In this special edition of Hold the Line, we take a deep dive into the world of the social justice warrior. Welcome to a special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. Since its founding, America has faced some existential threats. In the early 20th century, the United States helped crush the rise of fascism in Europe and Asia. In subsequent years, we stood in opposition to the menace of communism, a struggle that largely ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. Today, a new threat has arisen, not in the form of a foreign power intent on territorial acquisition, but an ideology that is eating away at the very foundations of this nation social justice. The ideology and its most fervent believers bear a resemblance to aspects of our previously vanquished foes. Like communists before them, adherents to social justice dogma believe that history and life can be explained as a perpetual struggle. However, whereas Marxist orthodoxy claimed that struggle was between economic classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, Social justice holds that the struggle exists between identity groups, those that are oppressed and those that are the oppressors. This is commonly referred to as cultural Marxism. Like fascists, the minions of social justice will use any means at their disposal to achieve their goals. Their tactics include intimidation, boycotts, yes, even violence. For months over this past summer, we saw those tactics play out in numerous cities across the nation. Storefronts were smashed, businesses torched, journalists intimidated and assaulted. Law enforcement officers were attacked, in some cases, killed. Like any movement, social justice has its loyal disciples. Its greatest zealots are the social justice warriors, also common referred to as SJWs. So who are they? Well, we know that social justice indoctrination often begins in schools and universities. It's also pushed by America's popular culture. It's embedded within movies, television, video games, and literature. The messages of cultural, cultural Marxism are meant to influence young minds. And this, unfortunately, has been a very successful program of long-term indoctrination and control. The social justice warriors, wokeness is another term for what they push, have seized the heights of our culture. They are, in fact, now at the top of our most powerful institutions, social media companies, news organizations, Fortune 100 corporations that sell everything from lawnmowers to soap to the clothing on your back. Social justice warriors are all over the place, and they don't want to allow you to have a different point of view. They want to force you to bend the knee. That's the whole point. The existence of your ideas they take as a threat to theirs. They demand compliance. They're not looking to bring converts over their side so much as they want to burn heretics, so to speak. Americans who value freedom need to push back against this social justice menace on all fronts, in our culture, in our politics, in our society. All right, we've got a great lineup of guests for you tonight. When we come back, we'll talk to a reformed social justice warrior who will take us inside the toxic world of the SJW. I got a crash course into home title theft and you better pray this crime never happens to you 
because it can ruin you financially. Here's how the crime occurs. The legal titles to our homes are kept online where they can be hacked. A cyber thief finds your home's title, forges your signature on a quitclaim deed, stating you sold your home to him. Then he takes out loans against your home until your equity is gone. You won't know until the collection calls pour in, and you're not protected by insurance, your bank, or common identity theft programs. Home Title Lock protects you, and in the unlikely event you become a victim of title theft while a member, Home Title Lock will spend up to a quarter million dollars in legal fees to help restore your home's title. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim of this crime and don't even know it yet. Then you can use code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, 30 free days of protection at HomeTitleLock.com. The ideology of social justice has infected nearly every facet of American culture, but the ideology's most fervent supporters, the social justice warriors, aren't born, they're made. Like all dangerous ideologies, it begins with indoctrination. Social justice message is preached in the movies and television shows we watch, the schools and universities our children attend, even in our places of worship. So just what does it look like to go through that indoctrination? How does someone go from being a normal, well-adjusted individual to preaching the most toxic gospels of social justice dogma. Our next guest considers herself a former member of what she calls the social justice cult. You can check her out at unsafespace.com. Carrie Smith. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. How'd you become a self-described social justice <laughs> cult member, social justice warrior? How'd you find yourself in that position? Well, for me, it started uh, at college. I went to Duke University in the late 90s, and I had never encountered any of the ideology um, in elementary school, middle school, or high school, which I don't think is the case today. I think it's trickled down to such a degree that kids are learning some of the critical race theory stuff that I learned in college um, as young as kindergarten now. Um, but I encountered it first at Duke. I was a women's studies minor. I was a biological anthropology an anatomy major, but my minor was in women's studies. And through that minor, I took a lot of classes in critical race theory, uh, queer theory, and they didn't have it at the time, but uh, now they have, it's sort of expanded. So there are classes in fat studies, um, mental health justice. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> yeah. Wow, um, that, that's actually new. Uh, tell me this though, the critical race theory in general, I know there's many facets and manifestations of it on campus. What does it try to tell people? Or what is the essence of critical race theory? What they're trying to teach people is that they're, the best way to look at the world as a, is as a competition for power among identity groups. So the way in which I try to explain it most often is if you think of Marxism, like classic Marxism that we learn about in school, or hopefully you learn about in school. I didn't really learn about it uh, very much. But if, but Marxism said the best way to look at the world was as a competition for wealth between class groups and that they wanted to redistribute the wealth. And then we would reach some kind of utopian. Um, so this this new kind of Marxism, it's sort of it's mutated to be about power and identity instead of being about wealth and class. And so when you look at the 
uh, critical race theory part of the ideology, what they're saying is that in order to redistribute power among different racial groups, we need to judge and treat people differently on the basis of race. And that sounds pretty racist. <laughs> and so one of the ways they repackage that is they call it, they call it anti-racism. And you will have people in the movement who are very popular or who have become very popular, like Ibram X. Kendi is one of the people I look at now as sort of, um, he's having his moment in the belief system. He's one of what I've kind of referred to as the high priests and priestesses of the movement. He preaches that there's only two ways to be in the world. You can either be anti-racist like him, which means judging and treating people differently on the basis of race his way, or you can be racist like a white supremacist and judge and treat people differently on the basis of race in that way. But he says there's no in between that it's impossible to, to not be racist. You have now, to be one of these two types. What, what did you think of anybody when you were, as you describe it in the social justice cult, what did you think of people who didn't agree with you? What, what are you trained to think of those people? Do you, are you trying to bring <laughs> yeah. them over? Or are you trying to shun them? Um, it is, it, I do describe it as a cult now because they encourage you, it meets a lot of the cult characteristics. So for example, they encourage you to cut off contact with people who do not share your beliefs, whether that's friends or family. There is a fair amount of trying to win people over to your belief system, but if someone is resistant to it and is putting up arguments against it, then you're encouraged to, to just shun them. Um, and you're, you're especially encouraged to shun people who leave the belief system. So when I left, I was in it for about 20 years, and which is a long time. <laughs> and I was a very, I was a true believer. I was a very fervent um, social justice warrior, I guess is, is the common term for it. But I preached it in all facets of my life. And I had over time, slowly whittled down my echo chamber online and in real life to be mostly people who just agreed with me. Um, on the best way to look at the world. And so it, it's cult-like in that way. It's also cult-like in that it it discourages you from asking questions. So you're not allowed to question the dogma. And there's are a lot of uh, psychological tools that they use that, that keep you from voicing any disagreement for fear of being ostracized. So you kind of, you get to this place where you're censoring yourself, where they don't even have to censor you because Everything you're saying, especially I'd say the longer that you're in it, you get to this place where everything that you say and everything that you post online is sort of filtered through this internal social justice filter where you're making sure that you're not saying anything that's that's ideologically impure. So, for example, um, there are lots of different phrases they come up with that they consider to be problematic or um, uh, triggering and and so uh, a funny example is, is, is something like saying like, Elizabeth Warren is my spirit animal. That's racist. You can't say that now, you know? <laughs> so every time you say something, even if you think it's something that your tribe is going to like, you're kind of running it through this filter to make sure you're not using any of the new words that you're not supposed to be using. What was the turning point for you? I mean, when did you decide you were going to turn away from this SJW life? The turning point for me was around 2016 and 17, and it was a slow process. It's not a fast thing because you get into it slowly. And so you're, you, I think necessarily you have to leave it slowly. It is, but it is, you're changing your entire way of looking at the world. It's not like a simple uh, change of, of opinion on a, on a policy position. 
And so it, it was a period of about six months to a year for me um, where I started looking at things differently. And one of the first things that that created a crack, I would say, in my worldview was going down a rabbit hole of videos on YouTube of people that were presumably on my side, like on the left, attacking Trump supporters outside of Trump rallies. And I didn't know that that was happening. In fact, I had kind of been plugged into the um, legacy media like propaganda. I thought, I believed that Trump supporters were violent. I believed there was a lot of violence happening at Trump rallies because of Trump supporters. And when I started watching video footage of, of people on the left surrounding Trump voters as they came out of rallies and attacking them like with bricks in some cases, with eggs, just mobbing them, it was emotionally very disturbing for me. Carrie, I appreciate you uh, sharing your yeah. story and this whole transformation. Thanks for joining us. Nowhere has the presence of social justice been felt more than in the halls of America's colleges and universities. After the break, Professor God Saad joins us to discuss the effect this toxic ideology has had on higher learning. Have you ever wanted to invest in real estate, but you didn't have the time to do it on your own? I felt exactly that way until about a year ago. I mean, look, I've always loved the idea of real estate investment, but I didn't know how to get started in it while staying committed to all my professional obligations. Like you, I'm really busy, right? I got hours and hours a day of original programming and content. You probably got a job, family, kids. You're busy too. So how was I ever going to take the time to invest in real estate on my own? Pick the right location, the right house. But then I met my friends at Done For You Real Estate. They took all of the guesswork out of it for me. They found me an awesome property. They rented it out for me right away. They managed the tenant for me. And now I get a check every month like clockwork. Don't wait another second to see if my buddies at Done For You Real Estate can do for you what they did for me. Visit doneforyoubuck.com to see how it works. Again, that's doneforyoubuck.com to start your real estate investment journey today with real professionals that I trust and work with. doneforyoubuck.com. The left began infiltrating college campuses long before today's cancel culture phenomenon revved up. Back in the 1950s and 60s, higher education had an open culture where students and professors could explore, argue, and try to learn from different social and political viewpoints. But over the past few decades, Western universities have transitioned from an open to a closed culture where different ideas and opinions are no longer tolerated in classrooms where one overarching ideology rules all campuses, social justice. Higher education's mission has transformed from the rigorous pursuit of knowledge to ensuring ideological purity. Joining us now is somebody who fights on the forefront of the cancel culture, professor, evolutionary behavioral scientist, and author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, Mr. God Saad. Uh, God, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, good to be with you again, Buck. Cheers. So what what does it mean that the academy now is a place where social justice is not only the dominant ideology, but the mandated ideology across all academic disciplines? So there's a field in applied mathematics called operations research, where you try to maximize or minimize some objective function. So for example, you might try to minimize the queuing time that consumers will experience while waiting to enter a restaurant. Well, universities should be 
maximizing the following objective function. Enrich your intellectual landscapes, pursue knowledge, pursue truth unencumbered by any shackles, whereas they've now changed their objective function to minimizing hurt feelings. So if in the pursuit of a laudable research question, you might end up hurting someone's feeling, then that research question becomes part of forbidden knowledge. So it started that that reflex began way before people sort of knew about social justice warriors in the in the current parlance. I faced it as an evolutionary behavioral scientist trying to Darwinize the business school. I saw the type of reactions I would get from my colleagues in the social sciences who thought that it was not Nazi-like to think that humans might be prone to biological forces. So this is something that I've been fighting before the current reality in my own scientific career. Tell us about some of the ideas or, or some of even the research areas where the social justice warriors, you said they, they came after you. What are things now in the academy that are within your discipline that you're just not allowed to pursue? Or perhaps if you pursue, there are there are conclusions that are for or that are that are preordained. So applying biology to explain the behavior of every species on Earth other than humans is what the progressive academic folks think. So if or you could even apply evolutionary theory as long as you don't apply it to something above the neck called your mind, right? So to apply evolutionary theory to study why there might be evolved sex differences is a big no-no. You must be some raging uh, Nazi sympathizer. You certainly don't ever want to study uh, very, in an unbiased manner, any racial differences. And especially if the racial differences don't come out in the acceptable manner. If, if the racial differences come out in a way that group A is perceived as B, as doing better on some task than group B, and if group A is the marginalized group, then go ahead and publish it. You're a great professor. If it comes out according to the wrong orthodoxy, then you better make it disappear in your drawers, otherwise you're likely a Nazi. Is your experience that your fellow uh, professors and, and academics, when you approach them in, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, let's say, to talk about this, are they aware of the uh, pernicious and, and pervasive uh, pervasiveness of this kind of social justice approach to all academic disciplines, or are they oblivious to it? They just think that this is, this is somehow always the way it has to be, but they don't know that there's an overarching ideology that's pushing for certain conclusions, as you point out. So I think the, the full gamut of possible, uh, you know, categories can be found. So some are not aware, are oblivious to it because they really are sort of stick in your lane professors. They only navigate through the, the, the myopia of their own narrow research interests. Others know about it, but downplay its importance. But probably the most nefarious ones are the ones who know about it, but actually think that it's a good idea. So they are what I call consequentialists, right? They don't pursue truth in an absolute sense. Rather, they pursue truth as long as it is consistent with their own values and belief systems. That's not what a scientist should do. Should do. And in that sense, they are grotesque. Do you think that there's been so much overreach on campuses that there's at least there's the beginning of, of an academic pushback, not from people who are conservative or political per se, but just people who are, devote their lives to the study of truth in some discipline of academia and recognize how, how ruinous and, and how this leads to just the perpetuation of falsehoods? Is, is, is there a, you know, in which direction is the pendulum moving right now? 
I think we haven't yet started to autocorrect. I think that there are a few high-profile professors who have the you know the testicular fortitude to stand up and say this is nonsense. But I think we haven't reached a critical mass that is necessary to put the pressure on the administrators to start switching their positions. So I think that you know you could probably count on one hand the number of senior administrators, deans, provosts, chancellors, presidents of universities that have really come out against the wokeness. And so I think that once we have a sufficiently large critical mass, the, the house of nonsense will quickly crumble. But until we get there, I think it's gonna get worse before we get better. And just, just real quick, what, what do you think a, a Biden administration, so the federal government now, clearly more woke than it was under Trump, how woke remains to be seen, what do you think that's going to mean for the way that academia and college campuses trend for the next four years? I'll, I'll, I'll answer it in a, a shameless self-promoting way. It's only going to make my book, The Parasitic Mind, that much more evergreen because all of the idea pathogens that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind are only going to proliferate much more staunchly under a Biden administration. God, Saad. God, good to see you. Thanks so much. You too. Cheers. While cancel culture has left a trail of ruined careers in its wake, some who cross the social justice cult face a far more dangerous outcome, intimidation and physical violence. Journalist Andy No has firsthand experience with both. He'll join us when we return. Antifa mob formed outside of a bookstore in Portland, Oregon, after it decided to stock and sell investigative journalist Andy No's new book. You can hear them screaming, stop selling Andy No's book, and threatening to get the store shut down. This is a typical scene for the anti-fascist black mass leftist group who pride themselves on inciting destruction, destabilization, and division among Americans. Of course, all in the name of anti-fascism. With little to no condemnation from elected officials, Antifa has become the street thugs of the radical left, the attack dogs for social and racial justice. So how have they gotten this far? No one better to ask about this than the person who's reported and covered Antifa for the past several years more than anybody else, Andy No, who's also the author of the brand new book called Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. Andy, before we get into this group, origins, what it's going to do, what, what it's been up to, all that stuff. Tell us first, why couldn't your book be in a major bookstore in Portland? What happened? It's because these Antifa people are afraid of its content. None of them have read it because it's not out until the 2nd of February, but just the mere idea of a book that seeks to expose not just their extremist ideology, but their tactics and their organizing um, and radicalizing, radicalizing tactics, they're terrified of that idea, so they don't even want the book to exist. So Pal, uh, Pal Books, I've actually been there, uh, <laughs> Cave to Antifa, they tweeted out, the books will not be placed on our shelves, we will not promote it, that said, it will remain in our online catalog. We carry a lot of books we find abhorrent, as well as those that we 
treasure. So it sounds like they caved, but they don't want to look. They, they, they got down on one knee, but they don't want to get down on both knees. What is this, Andy? Yeah, of course, they uh, tried to acquiesce, but that's never enough for Antifa. They still protested and harassed customers outside of the business for six days. Uh, customers were harassed who were going in and out. The business had to shut down for two of those days. And on one of the days, there was a riot that uh, you played the video clip. It bled out into the street. And this is a very busy intersection in downtown. But this is just has come to be the norm for Portland. Day in and day out, there's political violence because Antifa really faced no consequences in the legal system because Portland is essentially an anarchist jurisdiction. So, Andy, they, they passed out flyers uh, all around Portland to get your book banned from the bookstore. So, of course, now everybody watching this should buy Andy's book. But uh, just just that's for free speech reasons and because it'll be a great book. Um, but, Andy, here, here we have that flyer. The reason we're asking to boycott Palace is because of a book called Unmasked by fascist enabler Andy No. Uh, you are an investigative journalist. What, what, do they, what do they think they're doing by trying to shut you down? Well, Antifa haven't been particularly uh, secretive about their totalitarian fascist tactics, if you will. Um, the censorship of uh, their opposition. They've done actually literal book burning before during the riots last year. One of the nights they burnt Bibles. Um, so going after me, um, you know, it's on the target that they've beaten before. They gave me a brain injury before. And uh, these flyers are not only meant to intimidate the, the business, it's also meant to incite violence against me because they spread lies about me that make people react to it and think they're just hoping one of their comrades finishes the job that they tried to start uh, in 2019. Now, Andy, this group got more, Antifa got more attention under the Trump, uh, during the Trump uh, years than ever before. Uh, part of this was the college campuses that they showed up in. But just tell us about the rise of this group under Trump and how were they really positioning themselves as the the ultimate, the kind of vanguard of the hashtag resistance against the alleged fascist Donald Trump? Is, is that how this all came together? Yes, they really do think they're at the, the, the vanguard. They think they're at the forefront of opposing ascendant fascism. And I think what's made them particularly powerful as a growing phenomenon is because they've been given mainstream legitimacy. And throughout my book in, uh, in Unmasked, I write about how this mainstreaming process happened. And I think that's what makes them dangerous because you can actually isolate the instances of street violence out and still see what really makes them dangerous is their ideology, which is preaching um, political violence against their opposition. Again, uh, they're calling for the abolishment of the United States. They carry out acts of domestic terrorism um, against citizens, and they actually have killed. They killed in Portland. People forget that. People always focus neopically on the dangers of the far right and ignore when extremists on the far left carried out politically motivated attacks with the intended purpose of harming or killing people. Have they finally, uh, in a place like Portland that's seen so much destruction and violence and, and anarchy from these Antifa groups, uh, have, have the just day-to-day -day residents of places like Portland, Seattle, and, and other cities across the country finally realized that 
these guys aren't about social justice and, and maybe the authorities should take a tougher hand with them or do they still have cover from mainstream Democrats? They still have cover. With that said, it seems like at least with Mayor, uh, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, he seems to be waking, waking up. Uh, but recently he was assaulted by Antifa while dining out. So it, it's really too late. It's these networks and systems have already been developed and they've had months and months now to really perfect themselves. Uh, in the book, I think what um, I detail, like this process of how they got funding really quite in fr- uh, openly in front of our eyes, how they have allies in big tech. Um, you know, big tech has done a deep um, kicking off many, many big users on Twitter um, while leaving openly allowing accounts like the Rose City Antifa, Youth Liberation Front, groups that actually put out flyers for riots on Twitter and they face censorship. So um, the issue with Antifa is they're not, they're not facing really any opposition. Uh, in Portland, there's been more than a thousand arrests related to the riots and over 90% of them get the charges dropped by the district attorney. And that's certainly not unique to Portland. Seattle is seeing that as well. So I think what we're seeing is just a breakdown in the rule of law in major American cities. What do they say they, I mean, yes, anti-fascism, but what does that even mean, Andy? I mean, they, they think they're fighting for some kind of social justice. What are they trying to, what are these anti lunatics trying to achieve? They're trying to destroy America in every sense of the word. So in, on one, in one part, they're going after the nation state itself, which is why part of their agenda is the targeting of immigration and customs enforcement. They've carried out firebombings of those attacks. There's calls for attacks today, actually, on the 20th of January. Um, another thing is to attack the American, the, the, the ideas that make up the United States. So freedom of expression, um, free speech, property rights, um, uh, the rule of law, all of that, they attack intellectually, and they actually have the support and backing of a lot of academics. There have been academics and uh, professors and adjunct instructors who have been arrested and charged at some of these riots across America. Um, But they believe that all the systems of oppression of racism, white supremacy is linked to capitalism, is linked to uh, a free expression. And so they're working to undermine um, the norms of our society that have produced uh, a prosperous society in the West. They want to undo that. They really think that they can create a utopia with communist uh, communes. Just a quick one, Eddie. Are, are, are we expecting that they will melt away now that Donald Trump is no longer president? And what fascism are they fighting against under a Biden administration? In Portland and Seattle, they rioted after the uh, Biden won the election in November. Um, they've continued riot in Portland. There's been four riots uh, in my home city since New Year's Eve alone. That doesn't get any attention. And the attacks that they do actually really are the same things that happened at the Capitol Hill riots in that people come with uh, battering weapons to try to break into government facilities. That's what they do, and they've been doing that for months and worse, actually, because they also bring guns and knives and start fires. But that doesn't get any condemnation. I think we're going to see, if anything, they're going to be empowered as a movement because the whole opposition to the Trump administration from the beginning was 
was just a pretext for them to mainstream the ideology on the left, which they've been able to do. We should all go check out Andy Noe's book, Unmasked, online. Go get a copy of it. Andy is right there on the front line showing us what's really going on with this very uh, frightening domestic terrorist group. Andy, good to see you. Thanks so much and stay safe. Thanks for having me on. This past summer, we saw months of riots and demonstrations stoked by some of the most ardent supporters of the social justice gospel. Their goal? Defund the police. After the break, we'll talk to author Heather McDonald about the effect social justice ideology is having on American law enforcement. These days, being prepared for the unknown is more important than ever. I'm sure you've noticed the world we live in today is anything but predictable, and we could all benefit from something reliable right about now. What could be more reliable than real gold and silver? I'm talking about real gold and silver you can actually hold right in your hands. Call the Oxford Gold Group now and learn how easy it is to get real gold and silver sent securely directly to your home, or how you can have real gold and silver placed in your IRA or 401k. Just call the Oxford Gold Group at 833-600-GOLD and ask for your free guide on owning gold and silver. Again, call the Oxford Gold Group right now at 833-600-GOLD. The Oxford Gold Group is the only gold company I trust. Call them right now at 833-600-GOLD. One more time, that's 833-600-GOLD. Check out the Oxford Gold Group. It's who I get my gold and silver from. 833-600-GOLD. Defund the police. It was a refrain we heard all too often during a summer of unrest following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. During months of riots, BLM, Antifa, and the foot soldiers of social justice frequently clashed with cops, claiming that Floyd's death was evidence of systemic racism in U.S. law enforcement. It wasn't just a snappy slogan. In several major cities, local politicians did, in fact, move to reduce police funding. In July of last year, for example, New York City officials shifted roughly $1 billion from the police department, the NYPD. In Minneapolis, a city council considered a measure that would have eliminated its police force and replaced it with a, quote, public safety department. So what is behind social justice's hostility toward law enforcement? What does it mean? How will we see this in policies? Joining us now to discuss this is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of The Diversity Delusion and The War on Cops, two separate books I highly recommend to you, Heather McDonald. Heather, thanks for your time. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Before we do a look ahead at what we can expect from how social justice will affect law enforcement going forward, can you just tell us, now that we've gone through 2020 and the latest upheaval of Black Lives Matter, what has the social justice approach to law enforcement meant over the last 12 months? It's meant the largest one-year increase in homicide in this nation's history. It's meant another 2,000 Americans, mostly all black, killed. It's meant dozens of children, black children, killed, shut in their beds, on their front porches, at barbecues, in their parents' cars. Uh, And it has resulted in a destruction of civil peace in too many places in this country. Law-abiding business owners, law-abiding residents of high-crime neighborhoods are now 
under constant threat, uh, either from drive-by shootings or from the outbreak of riots at a moment's notice, because the narrative has completely delegitimated our criminal justice system, all based on a lie. And that lie is that policing is systemically racist. That is not true. The reality in our country is we have a crime problem. We don't have a police problem. Police are a manifestation of that crime problem. They are not the problem itself. What can you tell us about the actual defunding and, and if there's more of that that is planned? It, it sounded like this was something that no sane person would take seriously who's responsible for public safety, but there were a number of large cities, including New York City, where they at least made some changes in the budget. Well, what have those changes in the budget meant and, and what where are they with a more social justice conscience security force, whatever they want to call it? Well, it's not just defunding, Buck. It's also prosecutors who are funded by George Soros that are not prosecuting crimes. They're not prosecuting low-level public order offense. They're not prosecuting, amazingly, uh, resisting arrest or attacking officers. Uh, And they're sending a signal to criminals that they can get away with murder, almost virtually. And it's also a demoralization of cops. You now have officers, whether they've been defunded officially or not, who are leaving police forces in droves. So you you do not have adequate officers on the beat at this point who are able to respond to drive-by shootings. And what they're really not doing is the essential proactive policing. This is discretionary enforcement where instead of just driving around in your cop car waiting for the next person to get robbed and then going like crazy to try and take some witness information. Instead, what we want officers to do is use their powers of observation, their knowledge of crime conditions, their knowledge of who the gangbangers are in their neighborhoods who are terrifying the elderly senior citizens trying to pick up their social security check and stop and question those people when they're hanging out on a drug corner at 2 a.m., hitching up their waistband as if they have a gun. Instead, what officers are doing now is simply driving by obvious criminal suspicious behavior. And as a result, as I say, the crime increases that we've seen this year are off the charts. A hundred, many cities saw a hundred percent increase in homicides, shootings even higher. In in South Brooklyn, you have about 171% increase in shootings last year. And it's gonna get worse under the Biden administration. Biden went around during the campaign mimicking the phony charge of President Obama that black parents were right to fear that their kid could be killed by a cop every time he stepped outdoors. That is such a lie. Here's how many unarmed blacks were killed last year by the cops, Buck. 15. That represents 0.1% of all blacks who were killed by homicide last year, which is likely to be about 8,700. It's not the cops who are the problem in the black community. It is criminals. And cops are the solution to that problem, short of re- reconstituting the black family. Heather, what, what would, if the Biden administration, uh, and I know that a lot of this is state and local, but from the, the federal level, they're going to have, there are ways that they can try to influence law enforcement. They can, pat- they can get them with consent decrees. There are a lot of things the federal government can do, even at local policing. So what if, if they listen 
to the defund the police and social justice movement, what are the things that we should expect a Biden-Harris administration to push for when it comes to policing nationwide? They are going to put many more departments under consent decree. One of the great things that Jeff Sessions did uh, was to bring some rationality to the consent decree pro- process. A consent decree are these allegedly negotiated settlements between a uh, police department and the federal government. It slaps them with a grotesquely overpriced federal monitor, puts them under the thumb of a federal judge, neither of which entities have a clue about policing. Uh, this is costly, and again, it's demoralizing. The Biden administration wants to start going after prosecutors' offices if they have disparate impact in their charging decisions. Well, guess what, Buck? Every prosecutor's office does because of crime rates. Let's, And they're also going to uh, require more collection of racial data from police departments, ethnic data, and they're going to simply pers- uh, continue this narrative about policing being racist. Here is what police chiefs have got to start doing in order to fight back. They have to bite the bullet, swallow hard, and start educating the public about the reality of black crime. America is not white supremacist. It is so un-white supremacist that it chastely turns its eyes away from the reality of the vast disproportions in criminal offending. The reality is this. Blacks die of homicide at 13 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 43. Why? Because they commit homicide in that age range at about 10 to 13 times the rate of whites. In Chicago, a black Chicagoan is 50 times more likely to commit a shooting than a white Chicagoan. In New York City, blacks are 23% of the population They commit nearly three quarters of all drive-by shootings. Add Hispanic shootings to black shootings in New York City, and you account for virtually every drive-by shooting in New York City. That is true in every American city. The face of violent street crime today, sadly, is black and Hispanic. Does that mean that all blacks are criminals? Of course not. A small proportion of, of residents of these high crime neighborhoods are committing this crime, but it is vastly disproportionate. It means that the police cannot go where crime is being committed without having a disparate impact on black suspects. Right, Heather, we have, to, we have to leave it there. We appreciate you uh, bringing this to, uh, bring your insights to the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Buck. All right, that's it for this special edition of Hold the Line. Have a great night. As always, shields high.